Hello and welcome to this week's edition of the Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes. To keep in touch with us, use our social media platforms, Facebook, Instagram and Twitter, which are all at Q and Review. That's C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W. Or get in touch via information at qandreview.com. That's information at C-U-E-A-N-D-R-E-V-I-E-W.com. Please like and share our podcasts and give us any constructive feedback. The Herald, Monday the 7th of December 2020. News. Coronavirus. Sturgeon confirms level 4 curbs to be lifted this week. This article is by Tom Gordon. Nicola Sturgeon has confirmed no part of Scotland will still be under the toughest form of lockdown after Friday. The First Minister said all 11 council areas currently subject to level 4 restrictions would move down at least one level following a short, sharp circuit breaker. The local authorities were placed in the top tier on November the 20th in a bid to drive down stubbornly high levels of coronavirus ahead of the Christmas break. It was the first time any part of Scotland had been put in level four with a ban on household mixing, the hospitality sector and non-essential shops shut and travel restrictions. Ms Sturgeon said the Scottish Cabinet would decide the revised tiers tomorrow and they would be announced to the Scottish Parliament later in the day. Hinting the changes would be minimal, she said the Scottish Government would take a cautious and careful approach. Although the current level 4 restrictions will end on Friday, a deterioration in the disease could see them reimposed at a later date. There was confusion about the possible changes on Sunday after Health Secretary Jean Freeman said some areas might continue in level 4 after Friday. However, she later backtracked and said all level 4 areas would come off them, a position confirmed by Ms Sturgeon at the daily briefing today. Announcing 677 new confirmed COVID cases, taking the total to 100,783 overnight, Ms Sturgeon said the three-week clampdown had undoubtedly helped to reduce prevalence of the virus across Scotland. She said the picture varies from region to region, but the national situation is clear. The number of new cases has been falling for several weeks now. That includes reductions in the 11 local authority areas which are currently in level 4. We have always said that those authorities would move out of level 4 on Friday and I can confirm that remains the case. Over the course of today, we will be considering what levels should apply to these areas from Friday. Cabinet will take the decision on that tomorrow morning. We are also considering what changes, if any, should be made to the levels applying in other areas. She said the revised tiers would be based on local NHS capacity and virus trajectory, as well as the impact of social and economic harms. Part of that means taking account of the upcoming Christmas period and the challenges that will inevitably pose, she said. So in deciding on levels that will keep the virus suppressed through that period, we will continue to take a cautious and careful approach. This article is by Tom Gordon. You are listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 7th of December 2020.
I will never be ashamed of my love for England. An opinion article by Mark Smith, feature writer. I love England and the English. I love the place and the people. I love its past and its present. I love its great politicians and its great heroes. I love its cities and towns and villages. I love its greatest performers and its greatest artists, the comedians who've made me laugh and the musicians who've made me sing. I love the English countryside and I love English culture. And I love it because it's familiar and familial. I love England and the English and I will never be ashamed to say it. I realise, of course, that some of you may be feeling a bit awkward by now or irritated. You may find this expression of love from a Scotsman, this naked anglophilia, hard to take. It's not common or usual for Scots to express a love for England. It's more usual to express hate, dislike or distrust. And we do it in pubs and stadiums, and dare I say it, in Scotland's Parliament. Scotland, for obvious historical reasons, has a problem with Anglophobia, and if you don't think that's true, you may be part of the problem. The reason I'm raising the subject now, the love and hate of England, is because I've been trying to understand where we are now. The SNP's record on health is poor. Its record on education is woeful. Its behaviour over the Alex Salmond affair is suspicious. The death rate from coronavirus is higher than it is in England. And yet look at the polls. The latest Ipsos Mori poll suggests 55% intend to back the SNP in the constituency vote. On the face of it, this makes no sense. How can a party with an objectively bad record still be attracting such high levels of support? Very few voters, unionist or nationalist, think the NHS has improved since Nicola Sturgeon came to power and yet many of those voters still intend to vote SNP. I've heard it myself many times. Voters grumble to me about schools and hospitals and yet when I ask them who they're going to vote for, they say SNP. So why is it happening? I suppose there will be some who think the performance of the Scottish Government has been good and will vote accordingly. Fair enough, they're entitled to their opinion. But it's more likely that the SNP, and Miss Sturgeon in particular, are seen as a bulwark against the Tories and Boris Johnson. Approval ratings for Sturgeon are high, approval ratings for Johnson are low, and it's here, I think, that our attitude to the English may come into play. Obviously, Miss Sturgeon's ratings are good, partly because she is a better media performer than Mr Johnson. But the fact that support for the SNP is high when it has had a bad record in government must mean other factors are in play. If anglophobia is a problem, and it is, and if some Scots conflate Toryism and Englishness, and they do, then the First Minister has several things going for her. She's not a Tory, she's not Boris, and she's not English. You may think I'm exaggerating the importance of nationality here and that Miss Sturgeon's Scottishness doesn't matter. But if that's so, answer me this. Could you imagine an English man or woman becoming First Minister in the way that the English have voted for Scottish PMs? And if not, why not? 
Could it be because some voters have started to see politics in a distorted way? Englishness, Toryism and bad on one side, and Scottishness, the SNP, and good on the other. This has always happened in Scotland to some extent, of course. Until recently, Labour was seen as not English and not Tory, and benefited because of it. But a number of trends have worked to exaggerate the effect. What's happened is that England and English culture is increasingly being seen and felt as different, and this has benefited nationalistic politicians such as Miss Sturgeon, whose politics is also defined by being different to England. One of the explanations for the trend is devolution. Different political decisions are being taken here, but other cultural factors have been important too. Factors which help explain the love I feel for England, and may also explain why other Scots, particularly young Scots, don't feel the same way. What I mean specifically is the screen in the corner of the room, or more and more, the screen in our hands. Much of the love I feel for English culture came from the TV in the 70s and 80s. Scottish artists were also there and I loved them too. But from a young age, the culture I saw on TV was largely English and the stuff I loved, I loved like it was my own. That's what I meant by the word I used earlier, familial. Some of you may think I've merely fallen prey to a kind of Stockholm Syndrome. I was bombarded with English culture and became sympathetic to my captors. But the first thing I'd say to that is I love Gavin Maxwell and Norman McCaig and Conan Doyle as much as I love any English writer. I'd also say that England has given me some of my greatest loves. Morrissey, Victoria Wood, John Cleese. And part of the love is the shared aesthetic it creates with others. A fellow feeling across borders. If the feeling has reduced in recent years, and I think it has, then it's partly because the whole of Britain rarely shares the same experiences in the way it once did. I'm not necessarily bemoaning this. Things change. But the cultural experience that has replaced it is largely American and is disseminated through Netflix and Prime. The social media on people's phones can also be dominated by Scottish politics, particularly independence. The effect of all of this is to reduce the influence of English culture and this in turn runs a bigger risk. As long as Scottish and English people laugh at the same jokes and sing the same tunes, to an extent we feel the same. But once our cultural experiences diverge, so more of us will place less value on England and Scotland as members of a family of nations. The SNP keep telling us we're totally different to the English, but it's where most Scots start to believe it that the case for the Union will be lost. Herald Scotland recorded on Monday 7th of December 2020, a week in radio remembering Neil Innes by Teddy Jameson, Senior Features Writer. Here's a question for you. Does Neil Innes need to be rediscovered? Innes, who died last year, was at the heart of the history of post-war British comedy as a member of the Bonzo Dog Doodah Band, a substitute python and a ruttle, of course. And yet he remains a slightly shadowy figure in the story. The Innes Book of Records TV series rarely gets an airing, does it? 
Putting things partly right was Neil Innes Dip My Brain in Joy on Radio 4 on Wednesday. The first of three hour-long tributes to the comedian made up of old interviews, brackets, even Radio Scotland's Janice Forsyth turns up at one point, close brackets. The result was appropriately whimsical, if a little indulgent to be honest, assuming that everyone knew why Innes mattered rather than making the case for him. This first episode concentrated on the Bonzo years, but it was also a roundabout portrait of Innes himself, his Scottish father, his love of Dada and surrealism, his decision to make Belgium his hobby and the fact that, as presenter Diane Morgan pointed out, he was also a really nice man. There was a ghost of a more interesting programme within. Innes's obsession with the First and Second World Wars was rolled out. As he pointed out, the fact of the two world wars proved that clearly no one was in charge who should be in charge. In the circumstances, Innes' comic silliness could be read as a political statement. How else do you react to the savagery of war? Why be serious? Look at where that gets you. Maybe, though, a tribute to Innes' gifts was not the place to make that argument. Instead, this slightly baggy gather-up of clips at least made the case for Innes' importance. In that sense, it felt like a good beginning. By Teddy Jameson. The Herald, Friday the 4th of December 2020. News. Labour figures consider new bid to oust Leonard as fears rise Scottish party facing annihilation at Holyrood Poll. This article is by Michael Settle. A new attempt to oust Richard Leonard as Scottish Labour leader is being considered by senior figures within the party as they warn the move is now necessary to save it from annihilation in next year's Holyrood elections. If Richard stays as leader, Scottish Labour is finished, declared one leading insider. Another, a former minister, warned that Scottish Labour was facing an existential threat. Keir knows the position. Lots of people are saying we are heading towards annihilation. There is a strain of thinking that says, if we let Richard stay and he loses at the Holyrood election, then he will go and we will recover. The trouble is, it will be too late by then. We would have lost half our MSPs, lost public confidence, and we might even have been overtaken by the Greens. The position would be irrecoverable. But Mr Leonard made clear to the Herald he was going nowhere and intended to lead Scottish Labour into the May elections on a transformative socialist platform to revive the economy in post-Covid Scotland. In September, an attempt was being prepared at the party's Scottish National Executive to oust the leader. It followed MSPs Mark Griffin, Daniel Johnson, James Kelly and Jenny Myra telling Mr Leonard they had lost confidence in him and urged him to stand down to avoid an electoral catastrophe in May's poll. But the vote of confidence was pulled with just minutes to go after trade unions got cold feet and withdrew their opposition to the leader continuing in post. However, Labour insiders close to Sir Keir Starmer says he remains privately convinced Mr Leonard has to go, not just for the sake of the Scottish Party's survival as a political force, but also for the sake of his own chances of getting into number 10 in 2024. Yet the UK party leader is said to be caught in a dilemma, unsure if it is wise to risk a new row over ditching the Central Scotland MSP as Scottish leader in the run-in to May's poll, given the strong resistance to such a move among some left-wing supporters. Senior figures are calling on Sir Keir to pressurise the trade unions to use their influence to get Mr Leonard to resign. 
One told the Herald the unions are key. Keir needs to pick up the phone and talk to them. Another said, we need to have a last go at a vote of confidence because if we wait until May, it's all over, regardless of how difficult this is and how much blood there might be on the carpet. We might not even get to a formal vote. It might be a case of presenting to Richard the evidence he is going to lose a confidence vote and try to give him a dignified exit. Asked if Sir Keir believed Mr Leonard had to go, one senior colleague said, He's convinced it's the right thing to do. I'm not sure he's convinced it's deliverable. But asked if nonetheless a fresh attempt to oust the Scottish leader was now being seriously considered at the highest party levels, he replied, Yes, absolutely. Labour sources suggested Mr Leonard had convinced himself that he could turn things round despite the dwindling poll ratings. But one peer noted, Richard has tried, but it's not working. The plea should be to his conscience. He needs to do what is necessary to save the party. That's the key thing. There is no personal animosity towards him. He should just step aside and let someone else come in who can mobilise Scottish Labour. Names mentioned by party figures as a possible successor to steady the ship include MSPs Jackie Bailey, Sarah Boyack and Anna Sawar. The latest poll on Holyrood's constituency vote conducted last week by Ipsos Mori for STV News placed Scottish Labour on just 14 points behind the SNP on 55 and the Conservatives on 22. Three years ago, when Mr Leonard took over as party leader, Scottish Labour was on 25%, just ahead of the Tories. In the first Holyrood poll in 1999, Labour was the biggest party with 56 seats, gaining 38.8% of the constituency vote. In 2016, it had 24 seats with just 22.6%. Ahead of the 2015 general election, Labour had 41 Scottish seats. It now has one. Recently, the party has fared badly in Scottish local council election votes. Last month in the Clackmannanshire East by-election, its vote collapsed, falling from 20% to just over 8 with the Tories polling 51% and the SNP 32%. Asked if Mr Leonard's determination to lead Scottish Labour into the May Holyrood elections could destroy it, One senior figure warned, that is my conclusion. The public polling is showing Labour could be anywhere between 13 and 16% and it's going down, not up. It hasn't even stabilised. Richard's personal poll rating shows he is less popular than Boris Johnson in Scotland. One Holyrood figure agreed Mr Leonard should go but warned replacing him would be simply reshuffling the deck chairs on the Titanic, stressing, until we have a credible position on the Constitution, nothing will change. The MSP condemned who he called the Unionist Ultras and argued for a new constitutional settlement based on full federalism. We need a positive, sensible programme in which you devolve everything unless there is an overwhelming reason not to. Next week, Sir Keir is due to give a keynote speech on his plan for a federal UK when he delivers the John P. McIntosh Memorial Lecture at Edinburgh University. However, the great fear among senior Labour figures at Westminster is the threat to the Scottish party could spell disaster for Sir Keir's chances of ever getting into Downing Street at the 2024 general election.
The UK party leader has now made clear how Scotland is vital to his plan to defeat the Tories in four years' time. Yet, if the party standing north of the border weakens rather than strengthens, then another Conservative five-year term at Westminster looks certain. Despite the pressure for Mr Leonard to go, one Labour insider made clear he was intent on keeping the flame of Corbynism alive. The Corbyn cause is dead everywhere else. Richard is the last man standing. He's the guy at the Alamo. He feels a bit of responsibility for that, but on top of all that, he and his team genuinely think he is doing a good job, and all these problems we face are none of his making. In response to the concerns raised, Mr Leonard said, I will be leading Scottish Labour into the 2021 election on a transformative socialist platform to revive the economy in post-Covid Scotland. Scottish Labour members elected me to do this and I will be making the party case to the electorate ahead of polling day in May based on policies such as the Green New Deal to create 130,000 jobs. This article is by Michael Settle. Recorded from the National, 8th of December 2020, back in the day. Mystery of the birthday of Ettrick Shepherd James Hogg, Hamish McPherson. For some time now, lots of people here and abroad have been celebrating the 250th anniversary of the birth of James Hogg, the poet and author known as the Ettrick Shepherd. Most famous for his extraordinary novel, The Private Memoirs and Confessions of a Justified Sinner, published anonymously in 1824, Hogg really was a shepherd from a very poor family who, like his great hero Robert Burns, overcame the disadvantages of his lowly birth to achieve recognition in his own lifetime. The 250th anniversary of his birth thoroughly deserves to be noted and there have been numerous events held online to mark the occasion. The problem is we do not know the exact date on which Hogg was born. The only certainty about his infancy is that he was baptised 250 years ago this week on Sunday, December 9th, 1770, which is why we are celebrating him in the Sunday National today and in Back in the Day on Tuesday, when I will be examining his life and writing career in much greater detail, believing as I do that Hogg deserves to be much better known. Due to the fact that births were not recorded by a national system, and since the man himself was somewhat hazy about the details, we are unlikely ever to know exactly when Hogg was born, but we can take an educated guess that his birthday was sometime in late November or the first week of December in 1770. I am sure it would be a fascinating piece of detective work to discover the exact date, not least because Hogg himself said he was born in 1771, while we know for a fact that he was baptised in Ettrick Parish Church on December 9th, 1770. The record of his baptism is held in the National Records of Scotland, which confirms... James Hogg was baptised on 9th of December 1770, the lawful son of Robert Hogg and Margaret Laidlaw, tenant in Ettrick Hall. The entry in the old parish register for Ettrick in the county of Selkirk doesn't include a date of birth. It is that last detail which is so maddening for Hogg fans. One of the foremost scholars of Hogg and his work is Dr Robin McLaughlin, treasurer of the James Hogg Society, which does an excellent job in promoting Hogg's legacy. In a recent blog for the Society, McLaughlin wrote, 
All that's certain is that according to the parish records, he was baptised in Ettrick Parish Church on 9th of December 1770. However, the records do not include his date of birth. According to Hogg's daughter Mary, writing under her married name, Mrs Gordon, Hogg's friend Alexander Laidlaw had written to her that on the basis of information from Hogg's mother, Margaret, keep up, Hogg was born in the latter end of 1770. Mary Gordon assumes that from that information, a date in November and concludes that November 25th is not unlikely. The man himself is no help. For most of his life, he maintained he was born on 21st of January 1771, which not entirely coincidentally would have meant that he shared a birthday with Robert Burns. But I'm afraid to misquote Burns, but that's facts, a chill that most definitely dings. McLachlan points out that Hogg himself wrote in the 18th century children were usually baptised on the first Sunday after the birth, but my own research indicates that in the 1770s there was no hard and fast rule except for Anglicans and this Episcopalians who had to have their children baptised within 8 to 10 days of birth. Looking at genealogical records from the 18th century in Scotland, which I have done for several projects, it seems that most children were baptised within the first week or so of life. That makes a great deal of sense when you consider child mortality was sadly all too common in those days. If you have an old graveyard near you, take a tour and see just how many infants and young children died before their parents. Various fevers and epidemics took away whole generations of children, but thankfully for us, Hogg was not among them. He was the second oldest of four boys born to Robert and Margaret, his elder brother William and James stayed in Scotland all their lives, but his younger brothers Robert and David emigrated to the USA. His early life was spent on the farm where Robert Hogg was both a shepherd and a dealer in sheep. It was Robert's attempts to become a stock farmer which made James's childhood traumatic because his father made some poor investments and eventually went bankrupt. That event happened just a few months after Hogg became, began his education at the local parish school and with his father unable to pay the fees, he had to leave school at the age of just six. According to Hogg, that was the extent of his formal education, and thus was unlike Burns, who received a good education at John Murdoch School in Alloway. Interestingly, Burns also had to leave school, when the financial problems meant he was needed for farm work. But by that time, he could read, write, count, and had a knowledge of Latin. There's a remarkable coincidence between Burns and Hogg. Both had parents who strove to educate them, in Rabbi's case his father William, and in Hogg's case his mother Margaret. Even as a child shepherding sheep, Hogg also educated himself. On Tuesday and back in the day, I will show how Hogg developed as a writer and made friends with many of the leading literary figures of the day. I will also explain why I think he wrote Confessions, a great and very Scottish novel, and will also ask how the Ettrick Shepherd came to write this famous line in Confessions. Nothing in the world delights a truly religious people so much as con consigning them to internal damnation. Issue of the Day, Netflix, The Crown, by Barry Didcot, Senior Features Writer. After complaints over the historical accuracy of The Crown, a Netflix drama about the British monarchy, the streaming giant says it has no plans to issue a disclaimer to accompany the series. Who's been complaining? 
Take your pick from aristocrats, newspaper columnists, conservative politicians, a UK government minister, Oliver Dowden, Secretary of State for Digital Culture, Media and Sport, and even anglers. Start with the anglers. What's the catch for them? It involves the fishing technique displayed by Josh O'Connor, the actor playing Prince Charles. It has developed into quite a spat and has even reached the letters pages of the Daily Telegraph, a right-leaning broadsheet. To imagine that any self-respecting fisherman would allow his line to touch down so catastrophically is bad enough, wrote one irate correspondent. But to then suggest that such a cast could possibly result in the landing of a fine salmon is tantamount to gross, almost criminal negligence. So who else is joining O'Connor in the Tower? Creator Peter Morgan and Netflix have both come in for criticism, though for transgressions which go way beyond not knowing their backcast from their line tip. Morgan has responded by saying the series is thoroughly researched. In a statement, Netflix said, We have always presented The Crown as a drama, and we have every confidence our members understand it is a work of fiction that's broadly based on historical events. As a result, we have no plans and see no need to add a disclaimer. And now the UK government is involved. Well, there's nothing much else happening this month, so yes, they have turned their attention to The Crown. Interviewed in the Mail on Sunday, a right-leaning tabloid. Do you sense a theme developing here? Culture Secretary Oliver Dowden said he plans to write to Netflix and ask for a sort of health warning. Like on a packet of cigarettes? Yes, but less startling. It's a beautifully produced work of fiction, so as with other TV productions, Netflix should be very clear at the beginning it is just that, said Dowden. Without this, I fear a generation of viewers who did not live through these events may mistake fiction for fact. Which events does he have in mind? Conservative politicians of a particular stripe are scunnered by Gillian Anderson's depiction of Margaret Thatcher in the newly released season four, and anti-crowners are especially vexed by the depiction of the marriage between Prince Charles and Princess Diana. Newspaper columnist Simon Jenkins has accused the Crown of upping the fabrication an offence, and Charles Spencer, Princess Diana's brother, told ITV, I think it would help the Crown an enormous amount if, at the beginning of each episode, it stated that this isn't true, but it is based around some real events. I worry people do think it's gospel, and that's unfair. You are listening to The Herald Scotland, recorded on Tuesday 8th December 2020. Researchers find caffeine addicts don't actually like coffee. No surprise there. An opinion article by Catriona Stewart. A Presbyterian upbringing where parsimony was prized. Any treats had to be small enough that the associated guilt wouldn't negate their positive effects. An aversion to extravagance has followed me into adulthood and manifested itself, as far as luxuries go, in an obsession with food and drink. What better an inexpensive yet luxurious delight than a cake or a coffee? This, of course, immediately falls down when one starts buying a coffee every day, especially when accompanied by the cake. I once tortured myself by adding up everything I had spent on treat food in a year, and let's just say, inexpensive, was not a reasonable descriptor. 
When I worked in a coffee shop, I didn't ever drink the coffee. But as the saying goes, you don't know what you've got till it's gone. And only on hanging up my apron for the final time did I discover the multifaceted joys of a cappuccino or a flat white. Thinking back to it, I didn't drink coffee because I didn't like the smell or the taste. That seems reasonable, right? I was young. Like Olive's, coffee was one of those adult pursuits to which I assumed that one day my palate would adjust. I still wouldn't touch an olive if you paid me good money. But coffee? Well now. I'm trying to remember the tipping point from viewing the stuff as vile fagashesque poison to life's best comfort. There maybe was some standout brew that lured me to a passion for hot caffeine, but if there is, I can't think of it. More likely it was a slow creep of a habit forming. I mull this over because a small headline yesterday caught my eye. Coffee lovers, it said, don't like the drink any more than anyone else. They just think they do. Sometimes a penny drops, a truism chimes. A story about psychological research into addiction suddenly makes a whole lot of sense. Coffee has a pull. A cup of coffee is comforting, filling. It adds a sense of occasion to an ordinary day. I can't go anywhere without stopping for a coffee. And I'm very easily impressed by all the modern accoutrement of the drink. And yet a nagging sense of discomfort is lurking there too. I'm not sure I actually enjoy the stuff. I want it, but I don't really like it. Researchers from Friedrich Schiller University, Jena, in Germany, would be unsurprised. Their research found a clear link to how much coffee drinkers crave caffeine. The notion of a coffee addict is nothing new, but these findings made it clear that habitual consumers want coffee. They just don't particularly enjoy it any more than non-coffee drinkers. I make the acquaintance of an average two cups of coffee a day, with one of these made at home and one shop-bought. The local cafe makes the acquaintance of at least £25 of my money a week and more than £100 a month. I can't bear to scale that up any further. Supporting our local businesses is vital. But maybe so too is acknowledging that some habits, when viewed in daylight, are best set aside. One of the scant beliefs of lockdown has been the chance to assess how we live our lives. What cuts have we made that actually are no loss? What do we do out of habit rather than pleasure? After a brutal year of loss and anxiety, the news of the vaccine is the first spark of hope. And yet... I'm not sure I'm ready to go back into the world yet. How ridiculous. After months of emotional and practical privations, of missing friends and not being able to hug family, I should be leaping to return to civilization. Could it be that so much of the weekly routine is habit, a need for structure and the comfort of a status quo, rather than activities that gave any meaningful enjoyment? Working all day in pyjamas and being delighted for an excuse not to go outdoors was novelty, but has been a new habit. Not a healthy one, merely an indulgence of very worst instincts.
Life pre-pandemic was a frantic dash of always running late, always being overscheduled, never relaxing enough to find joy in my surroundings. It doesn't take a team of researchers to work out that, like coffee, choices were not always linked to liking. There's something freeing about that acknowledgement. Will it lead to any change? Well, I'll try to break the habit. The Herald, Tuesday the 8th of December 2020. News. Alex Salmond's inquiry. Nicola Sturgeon sunk by husband's evidence, claim Tories. This article is by Tom Gordon. The Scottish Tories have claimed Peter Murrell's evidence to a Holyrood inquiry has sunk Nicola Sturgeon by contradicting one of her statements to Parliament. The SNP chief executive, who married Ms Sturgeon in 2010, said his wife and Mr Salmond had twice discussed government business at the couple's home in 2018. However, Ms Sturgeon told Holyrood that she had took part in the meetings in her capacity as SNP leader. On the 10th of January 2019, Ms Sturgeon told MSPs, Like other party leaders here, I have responsibilities as leader of my party and I took part in meetings in that capacity. It would not have been appropriate for the meetings to be government meetings. Ms Sturgeon is currently under investigation over a possible breach of the Scottish Ministerial Code for failing to tell officials timeously about her contacts with Mr Salmond. Mr Murrell, the SNP's most senior official since 2000, today gave evidence to the Holyrood Inquiry looking into how the Scottish Government botched a probe into sexual misconduct allegations made against Mr Salmond in 2018. The former First Minister had the exercise set aside in a judicial review after showing it was tainted by apparent bias from the start, landing taxpayers with a £512,000 bill for his costs. Giving evidence under oath, Mr Murrell was asked about the first of five contacts Mr Salmond had with Ms Sturgeon while he was under investigation by her officials in 2018. This was on the 2nd of April at the Glasgow home shared by Ms Sturgeon and Mr Murrell. Ms Sturgeon has said Mr Salmond first told her he was under investigation at the meeting. Tory MSP Murdo Fraser asked why, if the meeting was an SNP one, Mr Murrell had said he had not been told about its contents by his wife and only learned of them in August 2018 after the Scottish Government probe was revealed in the media. Mr Murrell said the issue Mr Salmond raised with Ms Sturgeon had been a Scottish Government matter and Scottish Government business is not for me. Reminded Ms Sturgeon had said the meetings were party matters, Mr Murrell said she thought it was a party matter and once Alec told her what the meeting was about, then it became something else. Mr Fraser said, well that might have been the case for the first meeting, but surely the two subsequent meetings, it would have been obvious what the matter being discussed was. Mr Murrell said, a Scottish Government matter. Mr Fraser said, there is a degree of confusion here as to whether these were government meetings 
or these were party business meetings, and I don't think you're helping us to clean that up. After the evidence session, Mr Fraser said the SNP chief executive has sunk Nicola Sturgeon. He has directly contradicted the First Minister and exposed her claim that it was party business to be utterly false. Peter Murrell's words indicate that Nicola Sturgeon misled Parliament, gave false evidence to the committee and broke the ministerial code. The SNP chief executive said today that the meetings with Alex Salmond were government, not party business. That is the opposite of what Nicola Sturgeon claims. The First Minister's ever-changing story has been dealt a fatal blow by her own chief executive and husband. His evidence has shattered her claim to pieces. Labour MSP Jackie Bailey added Peter Murrell's appearance today demonstrated the lengths that the SNP will go to in order to prevent this committee from getting to the truth. Nicola Sturgeon claims her meeting with Alex Salmond was as SNP leader, but Peter Murrell has contradicted her previously and said it was in her capacity as First Minister that she met him. Both can't be right. This article is by Tom Gordon. Recorded from the Herald, 9th of December 2020. Fourth official at PSG unlikely to work again if guilty of racism. Kick it out. Aidan Smith. The fourth official at the centre of the racism controversy in Tuesday's aborted Champions League clash between Paris Saint-Germain and Istanbul, Basa Kishir, will struggle to work again if allegations made against him are upheld, according to Kick It Out chair Sanjay Bandari. UEFA has launched an investigation into the group pitch encounter which was abandoned after 13 minutes when both sets of players walked off the pitch in the wake of a red card being shown to Basa Kishere's assistant manager, Piero Webo. Subsequent video footage showed the Cameroonian accusing the fourth official, Romanian Sebastian Koltikusa, of using racist language, with Basa Kishere striker Demba Ba also rem- remonstrating with the official. Bandari said he hopes UEFA will impose appropriate sanctions if the official is found guilty and that any proof of guilt could effectively constitute a life ban. He told Sky Sports News, I'm not sure whether it would be possible, even if they didn't get a life ban, I'm not sure how easy it would be for that person to officiate again and whether the players would accept that. We have to let process take its course and hopefully they, UEFA, will do a thorough investigation and there will be appropriate sanctions. UEFA confirmed the match will resume at 17.55 GMT on Wednesday with a new team of officials led by Holland's Danny Macaulay. The fourth official replacing Koltykusa will be Bartosz Frankowski of Poland. In footage of the incident, former Chelsea striker Ba is seen asking the official Why, when you mention a black guy, do you have to say this black guy? UEFA said in a statement, Following an incident at Tuesday night's UEFA Champions League match between Paris Saint-Germain and Istanbul, Basa Kishar, UEFA has, after discussion with both clubs, decided on an exceptional basis to have the remaining minutes of the match played on Wednesday with a new team of match officials. A thorough investigation on the incident that took place will be opened immediately. 
UEFA had initially said the game would continue with a replacement fourth official, but it did not. Bassa Kisher, who had earlier posted a message on their Twitter account which read, No to racism, hashtag respect, announced their players would not be reappearing to complete the match. Our players have taken the decision not to go back on the pitch after our assistant coach, Pierre Webbo, was exposed to racist behaviour by the fourth official. Bassa Kisher said on Twitter. PSG said in a statement that all forms of racism go against the values held by Paris Saint-Germain and the club's chairman, staff and players. The club added, for more than 15 years, Paris Saint-Germain has led the fight against discrimination and continues to work to eradicate it all in all forms. The Capital Club is today one of the most committed sports clubs striving to end all forms of violence and discrimination. Girls Scotland recorded on Wednesday 9th of December 2020. Girls Aloud, Union of Scots female singer-songwriters formed to fight gender imbalance in music industry, exclusive by Martin Williams, senior news reporter. Female Scots singer-songwriters are joining forces to level up the massive inequality in the music industry, which means just 14% of signed to publishing companies in the UK are women. The Henhouse Initiative is a response to their concerns that just 12% of those registered at the Music Producers Guild, a UK collective of producers, mixers, recording engineers, programmers and remixers, are women. The collaborative all-female songwriting project funded by Scotland's publicly funded arts agency Creative Scotland, led by Tamara Schlesinger, who records under the name Malka, already has artists like multi-award winning folk singer Kareen Pollard, the Delgado's founding member Emma Pollock, Stina Tweedale of all-female rock band Honeyblood, Sarah Hayes of Admiral Fallow and Scottish Album of the Year shortlisted Carla J. Easton signed up. In the struggle to survive during the coronavirus pandemic, the group felt that women have fewer opportunities to develop revenue streams to sustain a viable career than men in areas from songwriting and production to the live arena, streaming and radio play. Emma Pollock So Henhouse was formed with a game plan to get together the rich and diverse array of wonderfully talented and award-winning female Scottish artists, writers and producers with the goal of collaborating remotely in the creation of new music across multiple genres. Henhouse will initially pitch an album's worth of collaborative songs for TV and films, which may also be released commercially. The aim is to generate further revenue for women songwriters during these difficult times. There is also the option to release the album in the future. It will also allow those without access to studios to write and produce from home and within the confines of their daily routine, allowing a balance of childcare and other jobs and commitments. Miss Schlesinger, who is on the advisory board of the Scottish Music Industry Association, SMIA, and lectures at SAE Institute in Glasgow, said, There's no touring for artists right now, hardly any money to be made, so setting up this collective feels like the right response. This is a place for talented female songwriters to come together to write on new projects and support each other. The music industry still has a long way to go when it comes to gender balance, with just 16% of songwriters registered at PRS, the UK Royalties Collection Agency, being women. And you only need to look at the lineup for festivals including Transmit to recognise that this is an issue across the board, not just on the writing side. Tamara Schlesinger, Malka, 
So many artists have lost their usual revenue streams during lockdown, mainly from their live shows, but also in hidden areas such as the usual royalties that you might collect from your music being played in pubs and shops. So I started to think of how I could find new ways to generate an income. I write a lot of music which is then pitched for TV and films along with getting syncs with tracks from my records. So that seemed like the right place to start. Many people in the industry have been making noises about making a change but very little has actually happened to reshape the landscape. I felt like now was the time to try and make a difference. The UK music industry contributed £5.8 billion to the economy last year but a report accepts that the Covid-19 had had a ruinous impact with the music industry hanging by a thread during lockdown. Scots music star Lewis Capaldi was among the musicians named that helped the industry continue its growth in 2019 along with Ed Sheeran, Stormzy, Dua Lipa and George Ezra. But new analysis shows that women continue to lose out. An analysis of this year's proposed three main stages at the Reading and Leeds festivals showed that only 13% of musicians on stage will be women. In accounting the music industry audit which examines the rosters of over 300 UK labels and publishers revealed that only 14% of composers and songwriters and 20% of musicians signed to those companies were female. This is despite women making up nearly half of all music degree students over the past five years based on figures derived from the Higher Education Statistics Authority. Miss Schlesinger said the songwriters are grouped in pairs for each brief and they are given a theme, a variety of genres and an overall mood to work towards when writing their material. They then have the freedom to create any song that they feel fits the mould of the brief with an aim for a three week turnaround per song and around 15 songs for the current project. I wanted to create a collective of incredible Scottish female songwriters who will combine their shared knowledge to create some exciting, innovative new music which we can then go on to pitch, said Miss Schlesinger. Others who have signed up include Amanda Wilkinson, brackets Bossy Love, close brackets, Beldina Odenia Onassis, brackets Heir of the Cursed, close brackets, Rachel Swinton, brackets Cloth, close brackets, Pippa Murphy, Inga Thompson, Susie Bear, brackets Pictish Trail, close brackets, India Rose and Elizabeth Electra. We are working remotely, sending files back and forth, but I do hope that there will be a time when we can be in a room writing the songs together again, Miss Schlesinger added. We are working remotely, sending files back and forth, but I do hope that there will be a time when we can be in a room writing the songs together again. I'm amazed at the level of writers that have managed to get involved with the project and I can't wait to hear the music we all create together. I think the most exciting part will be forcing each of us out of our creative comfort zones, pushing ourselves to try new genres and styles and to further develop our music production skills. I hope that this project can be expanded in the future, bringing on some up-and-coming writers who can work beside more experienced writers to develop their skills and widening the opportunities of other female songwriters in Scotland. Carla J. Easton said, I'm so excited to be part of Henhouse and work with some of Scotland's most accomplished and emerging songwriters to create new music. It's an exciting collaborative powerhouse of talent that continues to shine a light in the amazing and diverse songwriting that comes out of Scotland. Significantly, the opportunity showcases the incredible voices of so many women in an industry that's starting to redress the massive gender imbalance that has been prevalent for too long. 
In July, Liam Gallagher, Dua Lipa and Sir Paul McCartney were among 1,500 artists who signed an open letter calling for support for the UK's live music scene. And in September, the Nighttime Industries Association Scotland, NTIAS, which represents hospitality and events venues, has launched a campaign to reinstate music in venues which have fallen silent across the country. The campaign argues that Scotland's ban in music is ruining the atmosphere in pubs, bars and restaurants at a time when the sector is already struggling and that silent bars could also encourage patrons to physically move closer to one another in order to speak more quietly to avoid being overheard. By Martin Williams The Herald Tuesday the 8th of December 2020 News Oxford vaccine safe. Study of nearly 24,000 reports three adverse events, including in placebo group. This article is by Helen McCardo. Only one participant out of nearly 24,000 given the Oxford AstraZeneca COVID vaccine experienced a severe reaction thought to be linked to the JAG. According to a peer-reviewed interim analysis published for the first time today in the prestigious Lancet journal, one clinical trial patient went on to develop an inflammation to the nervous tissue around their spine, but the individual is now either recovered or recovering. Professor Andrew Pollard, director of the Oxford Vaccine Group, said, We have no safety concerns about the vaccine. The Oxford vaccine is still undergoing review by the Medicine and Healthcare Products Regulatory Agency, MHRA, and is different from the Pfizer-BioNTech vaccine currently being rolled out across the UK. The Lancet paper shows there were no severe COVID cases, deaths or hospitalisations in anyone given the Oxford vaccine and provides detailed data backing up earlier reports that effectiveness ranges from 62% to 90% depending on the dosing. A one and a half dose showed stronger efficacy than two full doses. There was also evidence that the one and a half dose regime could reduce asymptomatic COVID infections by 59% compared to just 4% with two full doses. Asymptomatic infections are a major factor in the spread of the disease. The researchers said further data would be collected as trials continue but wrote while a vaccine that could prevent COVID-19 would have a substantial public health benefit prevention of asymptomatic infection could reduce viral transmission and protect those with underlying health conditions who do not respond to vaccination, those who cannot be vaccinated for health reasons and those who will not or cannot access a vaccine, providing wider benefit for the society. Professor Pollard said it was premature to draw any firm conclusions in relation to transmission at this stage but added there's potential for something important there. Out of 23,745 clinical trial participants in the UK, Brazil and South Africa, the study reports that there were a total of 175 severe adverse events reported among 168 volunteers. The vast majority of these, 172, were not linked to either the COVID vaccine or the placebo, which was a saline injection or an existing inoculation against meningitis. 
Of the remaining three incidents, one affected a patient given the Oxford vaccine and one was a patient in the control group. The COVID vaccine patient developed a case of transverse myelitis, which researchers say is possibly related to the vaccine. This is a neurological disorder characterised by inflammation around a section of the spinal cord damaging the fatty myelin coating that insulates nerve cell fibres. The control group patient developed hemolytic anemia, a disorder in which red blood cells are destroyed faster than they can be made. The third patient is still masked as part of an ongoing trial in South Africa, meaning it cannot be reported yet whether they received the COVID or placebo vaccine. The individual developed a severe fever in excess of 40 degrees centigrade, but recovered rapidly and was not hospitalised. All three volunteers have recovered or are recovering and continue to be part of the trial, says researchers. Two additional cases of transverse myelitis occurred 10 and 68 days following immunisation with the Oxford vaccine. However, an investigation by an independent committee of neurological experts found that the 10-day patient in fact had pre-existing but undiagnosed multiple sclerosis. They concluded that the second case was also unlikely to have been caused by the vaccine, although no further details were given. A total of four non-COVID deaths were reported across the trial, three in the placebo arm and one in the Oxford vaccine arm. The causes of death were a road traffic accident, blunt force trauma, homicide and fungal pneumonia. Cases of severe COVID disease and hospitalisation were monitored for all 23,745 participants. From 21 days after the first dose, there were 10 cases hospitalised for COVID-19, all in the control arm. Two were classified as severe, including one death. The study provided more detail on the demographics of participants. Of the 23,745 volunteers, 82% were aged 18 to 55, with around 4,100 aged 56 or older. Data for the 11,636 participants who have reached Phase 3, the final stage of the clinical trial, which measures a vaccine's effectiveness in preventing disease as well as its safety, 83% were white and only 12% were older adults. The researchers said recruitment of older volunteers who are more at risk from COVID did not get underway until later on in the clinical trials. Of these 11,636 participants, 8,895 were given full doses of either the Oxford vaccine or the placebo. Researchers monitored and tested participants who developed possible COVID symptoms 14 days or later following their second dose. In this group, 27 out of the 4,440 given the Oxford vaccine went on to contract COVID naturally from the environment, compared to 71 out of the 4,455 given the placebo. This equates to an efficacy of 62% in preventing COVID disease. At the same time, a subset of 2,741 volunteers were given a half dose followed by a full dose. In this group, 
There were three symptomatic COVID infections out of 1,367 given the Oxford vaccine and 30 out of the 1,374 given the placebo, translating to an efficacy of 90%. However, the one and a half dose group did not include any adults over the age of 55. It will be up to the MHRA and the Joint Committee of Vaccination and Immunisation what dose regime to recommend if the Oxford vaccine is approved for use in the UK. The trial also measured protection against asymptomatic infection by asking 6,638 UK participants to complete weekly COVID tests. This identified 69 cases in total of people who tested positive for covid but had no symptoms. In the one and a half dose group, there were seven cases out of 1,120 people given the Oxford vaccine, compared to 17 out of 1,127 in the control group. This works out at an efficacy at 59%. In the two full dose group, there were 22 and 23 asymptomatic infections in the vaccine and control group respectively. It remains unclear why the lower dose seems to work better, but investigations are ongoing. This article is by Helen McCardo. Recorded from the Herald, 10th of December 2020. Gregor Townsend signs two-year Scotland deal extension through to 2023 World Cup. Press Association 2020. Gregor Townsend has signed up to lead Scotland into the 2023 World Cup after agreeing a two-year contract extension. Townsend began the head coach role in May 2017 and signed a new three-year deal in July 2018. The latest deal should see the 47-year-old become the longest-serving Scotland boss in the professional era. The former Glasgow head coach has secured 22 victories and one draw in his 40 tests. Scotland's Stuart Hogg scores his side's third penalty to win the Guinness Six Nations match at Park Y Scarlets, Yolandi. Townsend failed to guide Scotland into the knockout stages of last year's World Cup, but led them to five consecutive victories in 2020 against France, Italy twice, Georgia and Wales and Lanelli. Townsend said in a statement, I am honoured and privileged to have been given the opportunity to continue my role as Scotland head coach. I will be doing all I can alongside an outstanding support staff to improve the team as we build towards Rugby World Cup 2023 in France. Over the past year, I believe we have made progress on and off the field, which gives real grounds for optimism around what this team can achieve. I know how much your supporters want the team to do well, and the backing for the team has been fantastic, especially during the difficulties of the past year with covid knowing how much of a lift the country gets when the national team is successful. We have a very talented and hard-working group of players with growing depth in a number of positions. We'll be putting all of our efforts into unlocking that potential and helping our players deliver their best performances when they come together for our future campaigns. Mark Dodson says Townsend has refocused. Scottish Rugby Union Chief Executive Mark Dodson added, I'm really pleased we can continue to have Gregor lead the Scotland team over the next couple of years and into 2023 Rugby World Cup. I've been impressed with how Gregor has refocused his approach over the last 12 months following the disappointing results at the RWC 2019 and believe he is the right man 
to continue an anticipated upward trajectory of this group of players and coaches. International rugby has never been such a competitive arena and Scottish rugby is determined to keep pace with other nations and having a talented and respected coach like Gregor on board is an important factor in helping us achieve that. You are listening to the Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 10th December 2020. When it comes to Scotland's woke wars, I know which side I'm on. An opinion article by Neil McKay, writer at large. I detest the word woke. It's become the modern day equivalent of politically correct. And I recall how that expression was deployed with mocking sneers in the 1980s and 90s against anyone trying to do even the slightest bit of good in society. For a while, woke was a convenient way of describing a certain level of fanaticism and extremism, particularly online, when it came to fighting modern-day monsters like racism and sexism, among a wearyingly authoritarian band on the left. Let's call it the unacceptable left. Now, though, woke has firmly migrated to be part of the language of the right. And by that, I don't mean your average decent Tory, but the nasty right the hard right. Let's call it the unacceptable right. Woke is now a phrase favoured by those who see themselves a little too polite to call someone a libtard. I regret using the term woke myself. I found it for a time a useful phrase when it came to explaining my anger at folk I felt were undermining attempts to make our society more fair and equal. When, for instance, Jamie Oliver was accused of cultural appropriation for cooking jerk chicken, or Adele was similarly attacked for wearing a bantu knot. I was furious that such idiocy would undermine efforts to address racism in Britain. There's been a host of such petty incidents, and each one eats away at whichever good cause it attempts to defend. Fulminating rants about some clumsy man complimenting a woman's hair won't, in my view at least, further the cause for eliminating sexism. In fact, these micro-rages are entirely counterproductive. Such willful posturing has helped fuel the rise of the new right in recent years. Every time some absurdity was uttered by the unacceptable left, a new member of the unacceptable right was created. So, for a while, I fell into the trap of seeing woke as a shorthand way of getting across my frustration that people I felt were undermining positions folk like me had fought over for decades. Now though I see the word woke taking on a much darker shape. When the term woke becomes an insult accompanied by boos against football players trying to show their support for the black community, I know which side I'm on. Here in Scotland, woke has been deployed repeatedly amid the SNP's internal wars. There's multiple fracture points among nationalists, and one of the biggest is between what you would broadly describe as the party's progressive left and its reactionary right. The recent elections to the SNP's National Executive Committee were seen as a defeat for the party's woke. In truth, what's happened is that young idealistic SNP members, with an open, generous view of the world, have been put in their place by a reactionary old guard not a promising sign of what a future Scotland might hold with the SNP in charge. A lot of the stresses and strains among the SNP centres on the issue of trans rights. 
and the Scottish Government's decision to hold a public consultation on a gender recognition bill, which would make it easier for trans people to get a gender recognition certificate. So far, that's all that's happened. A consultation about a certificate. However, the rage and hate on both sides has been grotesque. Women have been subjected to appalling misogyny, and the trans community has been subjected to appalling hatred. There are fraught issues, for sure, which need debated and worked out. But is it beyond the wit of the people of Scotland to have this discussion with kindness and good grace for all, as has happened in many other countries? This trans right war gets to the very heart of the problem, though. Women still suffer from gross inequality. Trans people are treated with disgraceful contempt. Yet rather than striving for fairness for all, people who should be on the same side are forced into confrontation as intemperate language replaces debate. I worry that some of us who wish to fight good fights are doing the work of our opponents. We're turning on each other, to their delight, when we should be working together. That's why I find myself in agreement with Barack Obama. He's warned repeatedly that the misuse of language can greatly undermine the left. Just a few days ago, he took issue with the term defund the police. In essence, what the slogan means is take some money from police budgets and use that to pay for homeless services or more social workers. It doesn't mean shut the police down by ceasing all funding, but that's what it sounds like to many. It's an immediate mass switch-off. If you wish to win a political argument, you need to win supporters. Extremist language doesn't do that, it repels, and that means opponents win. So for me, when my side, broadly the liberal left, deploys alienating slogans, all I see is a win for the unacceptable right, for the racists and sexists. I'm aware I'm one of the luckier ones in this debate. I'm white, I'm a man and I'm straight. I would never and could never aspire to tell black people or women or gay or trans people how to fight their battles. But I have been an ally all my life and we won battles in the past. My generation stood up to sexism and racism and homophobia and beat real evils down or at least beat them back. I remember the sneering voices who described our campaigns over apartheid Section 28 and women's rights as political correctness gone mad. It wasn't anything of the sort. These campaigns were about people who were discriminated against demanding their rights and their friends and supporters backing them up. When the term woke is thrown around now, all I hear are those hateful voices of the 80s and 90s, just dressed in different clothes today. Yes, some on the left have undermined good causes and good fights with their foolish and extremist language. And the absurdity of trying to cancel debate and even the cruelty of trying to cancel people they disagree with. But that doesn't nullify those good causes and good fights. It just means we have to argue better if we are to win. Herald Scotland recorded on Thursday 10th of December 2020. Books, a friendship in letters reveals the long-distance bond between GM Barry and R.L. Stevenson by Rosemary Goring, literary editor and columnist. A friendship in letters, Robert Louis Stevenson and GM Barry, edited by Michael Shaw, Sandstone Press, £11.99, 
Review by Rosemary Goring. Superficially, it's hard to think of two more different writers than Robert Louis Stevenson and G.M. Barry. One was a Laos bohemian ending his days in the South Seas, the other the douse writer of Peter Pan, who kept one foot in childhood, the other in his hometown of Kiri Muir. Yet as a short but intense correspondence between them shows, they had a great deal more in common than their nationality. In outlook and in artistic beliefs, they were more simpatico. In some respects, they could be called soulmates. The full correspondence between the pair has never been published like this before. Michael Shaw, an English lecturer at Stirling University, has gathered all their letters to each other over the period February 1892 to October 1894, while RLS was in Samoa. To these he has added an introduction that outlines their careers and personal affairs, along with an appendix of Barry's public tributes after his death to the man the Samoans called Tusatala, the teller of tales. Although Shaw's tone is academic, this is a useful guide to the background to this unique correspondence. Made all the most interesting because, while the pair frequently professed the hope to one day meet, they never did. Also helpful, indeed essential in places, are Shaw's concise footnotes. After his death in December 1894, Stevenson's widow, Fanny Vandegrift, said that his letters to Barry were among the gayest he ever wrote. This simple volume bears out that vivacity. Beginning with RLS writing to Barry to applaud his work and answer speculation over a possible sequel to Kidnapped, it quickly moved from the friendly formality of admiring strangers to frank and even confessional exchanges that illuminate many private corners of their lives. Among them, though hard to interpret at this distance, is the comment from Barry that, to be blunt, I have discovered, have suspected it for some time, that I love you, and if you had been a woman... In his opening letter, RLS writes that he believes that they are both probably rather Scotty Scots, adding, No place so brands a man. On a later occasion, he reflects, It is a singular thing that I should live here in the South Seas under conditions so new and so striking, and yet my imagination so continually inhabit that cold old huddle of grey hills from which we come. Part of his eagerness to embrace Barry might have been homesickness. Yet the immediate bond they made, leaping so swiftly into the teasing mockery, outspoken criticism and openly expressed affection that is the mark of true friendship, suggests a deeper connection. Initially RLS is the more renowned of the two, Barry's play Peter Pan was not staged until 1904, but while Stevenson is by this time famous for Treasure Island and Kidnapped, Barry's most acclaimed works include Old Licht Idols and A Window on Thrums. Yet Stevenson soon drops his faintly mentorish tone. I'm a capable artist, but it begins to look to me as if you are a man of genius. The pictures that each paints of their home life are valuable. Stevenson's noisy menage at Vilima on the Pacific island of Vanuatu included his wife, stepchildren and mother. As he conjures up the household, its occupants feel vividly present, where he describes what they eat, eels frequently, and how they dress, barefooted. Barry responds with images from the family home in Kerry Muir, immortalised in his novels as Thrums. His devotion to his sister and to his elderly mother is touching. When Barry was mortally ill, it was kept from his mother. She has an idea that where I am there, she is perfectly safe. She is like a child in the matter. That is the only reason I have for not coming to Vilima just yet. When he married the actress Mary Ansel, they were eager to spend their honeymoon in Vanuatu, but it was not to be. There are flights of fancy when Barry launches into comic imaginary conversations and scenarios. There is gossip showing the barbed tongues of men of letters when they believe they won't be overheard. 
In this respect, RLS positively pumped the playwright for information. Breathe your secrets to me fearlessly. Even if the trade wind caught and carried them away, there are none to catch them nearer than Australia unless it were the tropic birds. As a result, we learn how irritating the pushy young novelist Samuel Crockett could be. Barry writes, Do you know Crockett personally? If you have met him once, or less frequently, you're his bosom friend forever. Whether you want to be or not. And both relish tearing apart Thomas Hardy's latest novel, Tess of the D'Urbervilles, despite him being a great friend of Barry's. One of Barry's anecdotes is notable for his edge. I'm told Hardy's new novel, now in serial, is about a man who falls in love first with one woman, then 20 years afterwards with her daughter, then 20 years afterwards with the granddaughter whom he marries. I put my hand in his shoulder the other night and he started, as if he thought it was the policeman at last. Part of what makes the rapport so memorable is that while it takes place only in paper, it fires their imaginations. Particularly evident is the influence of the Wizard of Samoa on Barry's work. His imprint, says Michael Shaw, is especially evident on Peter Pan. Telling Barry how easy it is to reach Vanuatu, RLS writes, You take the boat at San Francisco, and then my place is the second to the left. Years later, when Peter Pan is asked where he lives, he points to the stars, saying, Second to the right, and then straight on till morning. The chime is crystal clear, as is the enduring significance of this friendship. By Rosemary Goring The Herald Wednesday the 9th of December 2020 News Carbon gas heating to be banned from new homes in Scotland. This article is by David Ball. Gas central heating that produces carbon emissions is set to be banned from all newly built homes in Scotland by 2025. The Scottish Government has launched proposals for all new built homes to have heating systems that produce zero direct greenhouse gas emissions amid its pledge to become a carbon neutral country by 2045. If approved, all heating systems in all new buildings given consent from 2024 will be built to zero emission standards and achieved from 2025 at the latest. The UK Committee on Climate Change, CCC, has recommended the 2025 timescale for moving away from direct emissions from heating homes. Scottish ministers have launched a consultation for views on the new build heat standard plans, which also include ensuring new homes and non-residential buildings are affordable to heat, supporting the delivery of a continued supply of high-quality homes and offer opportunities for retraining and upskilling workers to install zero-emission heating systems. Housing Minister Kevin Stewart said the pace of decarbonising Scotland's domestic and non-domestic buildings has to increase significantly to achieve our targets on climate change. The new build heat standard will be an important contribution to this to ensure emissions from heating and cooling our buildings falls close to zero. We want to combine the action we need to meet the challenge of the climate emergency with our ambition to provide affordable warm homes. We are seeking views from stakeholders on the most effective way to introduce this standard to ensure it is deliverable and fit for purpose. The Scottish Government has set out its stance that heat generated by electricity or district heat networks would produce zero direct emissions. More evidence is being gathered on other technologies that could produce zero emissions or close to zero direct emissions. 
hydrogen boilers could potentially be considered, with the CCC recommending 2025 as the timescale for transitioning boilers from natural gas to hydrogen. The committee has also recommended that sales of gas boilers should be phased out by 2033, except in zones designated for district heat or hydrogen networks. Edinburgh City Council has already made a commitment that its own new housing stock will become carbon neutral. Professor Lynn Sullivan, zero carbon building expert and chair of the Good Homes Alliance, co-chaired the Scottish Government's new build heat standard working group. She said, we recognise the priority for new buildings to achieve higher efficiency and be ready for zero emissions heating sources in line with Scotland's world-leading climate commitments. We welcome the consultation on new homes and believe the targets are achievable with existing technologies at scale. Delivery will unlock long-term economic benefits as well as future-proof Scottish homes. But the Scottish Greens have called for more urgency from ministers. Scottish Greens housing spokesperson Andy Whiteman said, The housing minister is right to say that the pace of decarbonising homes needs to increase, but the fact is that Scotland lags well behind many normal European nations on this. New homes should be required to meet passive house or other net zero standards and public funding should no longer be used to subsidise high carbon heating systems. He added, meanwhile, if we recognise the pace of change needed, we also have to recognise that a quarter of homes in Scotland face fuel poverty every year. We need a target on all homes with a programme of deep retrofits of fuel-poor households and social housing, which would create thousands of jobs in the process. This article is by David Ball. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 11th of December 2020. Young Adult Book Review. Sassy Wild by Maggie Gibson. Sassy Wild, Maggie Gibson, Puffin, £6.99. What is the book about? Sassy Wild, like her name may suggest, is a determined and independent young girl that has two clear dreams, to save the planet and to spread her values through songs. Who is it aimed at? Between the ages of 9 and 12. What was your favourite part? Whenever I think of this series, and this one in particular, what always comes to mind first is the effortlessly written strength of the female characters. Sassy and her friends were the kind of teenagers I wanted to be like when I was younger, with honourable core beliefs and real ambition. What was your least favourite? The writing style had a tendency to feel overly simplistic. Which character would you most like to meet? Sassy stands out to me. For all her flaws and strengths, she's a lot to talk about. Why should someone buy this book? It's the kind of book you would want all your friends to read simply to be able to talk about, and where you'd go to the nearest bookshop to pick up the next in the series. By Herald Scotland. The Herald, Thursday the 10th of December 2020. News, Gordon Brown to lead Labour Devolution Convention in bid to rival NDRF2. This article is by Tom Gordon and Hannah Roger. Gordon Brown is set to head a new UK-wide constitutional convention designed to reform and extend devolution and fend off Scottish independence. The former Labour Prime Minister is understood to have agreed to chair the Labour initiative, which would draw heavily on citizens' assemblies across the nations and regions. 
The intention is to set up the convention before next May's Holyrood elections in order to counter SNP demands for a second independence referendum. Although Labour-led, the Liberal Democrats have said they are interested in working with the convention, calling it a significant development. Polls show the SNP on course for another overall majority in 2021, and Nicola Sturgeon has said she wants NDRF 2 in the first half of the next parliamentary term. Labour's plan to save the union is to ask voters to get greater devolution instead, with the ultimate goal a federal UK in which power would be shared more evenly around the country. The convention will also be pitched as a way of addressing the frustration and lack of power felt by nations, regions and English mayors during the Covid crisis. It would attempt to thrash out where powers should best lie and how to empower ordinary citizens. However, putting its recommendations into effect would rely on a future Labour government being elected at Westminster, with the next scheduled election not until 2024. That would allow Ms Sturgeon to argue it would be too late and too uncertain an option next May. The First Minister announced her own plan for a constitutional convention of politicians in January, but with the narrow aim of asserting Holyrood's right to decide on any ref too. However, it stalled because of COVID and a lack of cross-party interest. Scottish Labour leader Richard Leonard said he would like the convention to consider a council of ministers in which the four nations would jointly agree big policy changes. In an interview with The Herald, he said, There needs to be work done through a constitutional convention. The Labour Party needs to demonstrate to the people of Scotland that we are serious about this reform agenda and we want to get on with it. This is not something we are contemplating doing sometime down the line. It's something that we are getting to work on straight away. In my view, the sooner that we can make progress on this, the better. Mr Brown and a host of English mayors yesterday wrote to Boris Johnson warning the UK is in great danger given multiple polls showing Scots losing faith in the Union. They called for a more federal Britain of nations and regions, a free and equal partnership, with stronger devolution bringing power closer to the people, especially in England. They added, Time is fast running out. We can still save our country, but we need to act now. Scottish Liberal Democrat leader Willie Rennie said to have the heft of the former Prime Minister and Chancellor behind this important initiative to reform the United Kingdom is a significant development. The Liberal Democrats have long argued for reform to a federal United Kingdom so the nations and regions of the country can have a bigger say and better ways of agreeing with each other and working together. We are keen to talk to Gordon Brown about the involvement of the Liberal Democrats as we want to use the knowledge and expertise we have developed over many years to make this initiative the success it needs to be. Labour's convention plan was supposed to be announced by UK leader Sir Keir Starmer in a speech tomorrow, but the event was cancelled because of Brexit developments. Labour sources revealed Sir Keir would have unveiled the convention which he promised in his leadership campaign earlier this year as a way to secure a new, decentralised UK. Crucially, the project would not rely on the UK government's approval, but get underway while Labour was in opposition in readiness for power.
Mr Brown's job would be as figurehead and chair of the convention, the role filled by Canon Canaan Wright in the Scottish Constitutional Convention, which laid the groundwork for devolution in the Scottish Parliament in the late 1980s and 1990s. In recent months, Mr Brown has been increasingly strident in calling for devolution reforms, saying the coronavirus pandemic has exposed the over-centralised nature of the UK. He told the New Statesman last month a constitutional convention could unite communities and examine matters that directly affect our daily lives, such as health, industry, jobs, social security and climate change. He added, The virus has revealed some of the weaknesses that we've got to solve. The United Kingdom is a multinational country and we think it is only as a unitary state. It's got diverse regions as well as nations, yet we have thought too much in terms of centralisation. The sooner we recognise that this is a problem that's got to be dealt with, the better. The danger is that the United Kingdom goes the way of the British Empire, and that is something that we have got to avoid by taking action now. Last weekend, more than 20 Labour peers organised by Lord George Folkes also called for a review of the devolution settlement by way of a UK constitutional convention. The peers said the Covid crisis had strained the union and coordinated action was needed for the recovery. They said, We urge the government to take urgent action to review the constitution, but should it refuse to do so, we call on Keir Starmer as leader of the opposition to take such an initiative. SNP MP Kirsten Oswald her party's deputy leader in Westminster said, The Tories' Brexit chaos is not a reason to postpone decisions on Scotland's future. Quite the opposite. No amount of constitutional tinkering of the kind proposed by Labour would protect Scotland from Brexit or a Tory power grab. Only independence will do that. UK Labour's 2019 election manifesto included a renewal of Parliament by a UK-wide constitutional convention led by a Citizens' Assembly to answer crucial questions on how power is distributed in the UK today, how nations and regions can best relate to each other and how to empower citizens. The plan included abolition of the House of Lords in favour of an elected Senate of the nations and regions. This article is by Tom Gordon and Hannah Roger. Herald Scotland recorded on Friday 11th of December 2020. Festive Scottish books, films, TV shows and songs by Susan Swarbrick, columnist and senior features writer. Using a red felt-tip pen to circle any essential Christmas viewing in the TV listings has become a time-honoured tradition. But how else to mark the season? Here we share some festive ideas to enjoy the best of Scotland through screen, page and song. Doctor Who Many a Doctor Who adventure has had strong Scottish ties, not least with three Scots-born doctors, Sylvester McCoy, David Tennant and Peter Capaldi, and memorable characters including Karen Gillan as Amy Pond and Michelle Gomez playing Missy. A 2014 episode titled Last Christmas featured Maureen Beattie, the actor-daughter of the late comedian and entertainer Johnny Beattie, as North Pole scientist alongside Capaldi. This year's festive instalment, Revolution of the Daleks, will see John Barrowman reprise his role as Captain Jack Harkness. The Princess Switch switched again. 
In the original Netflix movie, The Princess Switch, Vanessa Hudgens plays Stacy, a Chicago baker who visits the fictional European country of Belgravia, where she meets Lady Margaret Delacour, Duchess of Montanaro, also Hudgens, who is her double in the Switch places. The newly released sequel, The Princess Switch Switched Again, follows a similar premise, but with a sneaky third lookalike in the mix. That's three Vanessa Hudgens for the price of one. The glittering Christmas movie was filmed in Scotland earlier this year against a backdrop of Glasgow Cathedral, Hopeton House near South Queensferry, Edinburgh Gateway train station, the capital's Parliament Square and Mimi's Bakehouse in Leith. Castle for Christmas Another Netflix movie to use Scottish scenery and architecture is A Castle for Christmas. Starring Brooke Shields of Blue Lagoon and Suddenly Susan fame, the story is about an American author who travels to Scotland and decides to buy a castle. Carrie Elwes, known for his roles in The Princess Bride and Ella Enchanted, plays a duke in the castle owner who is reluctant to sell up. It's directed by Mary Lambert, who made the original supernatural horror film Pet Cemetery and teen thriller The In Crowd. Filming locations include Dalmeny House and Estate near Edinburgh and Drimsinny Estate Holiday Village at Loch Goyle in Argyll. Shooting took place this autumn and no release date has been announced as yet. Downton Abbey the Crawley family swapped Downton Abbey for Donegal Castle in the 2012 Christmas special of the BBC historical period drama. The fictional estate of the Marquis and Marchioness of Flintshire was filmed in location at Inverary Castle, the real-life ancestral home of the Duke of Argyll. The episode featured lockside picnics, shooting excursions and a spectacular Gillies Ball, although tensions soon rose between the Crawleys and their hosts. Written by Julian Fellows, among the cast were Hugh Bonneville, Michelle Dockery and Dame Maggie Smith. The Iron Bruce Snowman advert, an homage to classic Christmas film The Snowman, it depicts a pyjama-clad boy and his eponymous friend soaring above dreamlike scenes of Scottish landscapes in a much-beloved Iron Brew advert which debuted in 2006. It all goes pear-shaped when the youngster refuses to share his Iron Brew and is dropped from a great height to land in George Square in Glasgow as his former pal flies away clutching a stolen can of amber nectar. A sequel was made in 2018 about the boy's efforts to get his iron brew back. He jumps in a propeller plane and gives chase over landmarks including the SSE Hydro, the Kelpies, Fourth Bridges, V&A Dundee and the Edinburgh Skyline. In a delicious twist, just as it appears the iron brew will finally be snatched back, Santa swoops down in a sleigh and pinches it, leaving both the boy and the snowman fuming. Both adverts are set to the tune of Walking in the Air using amusing amended lyrics. The Snowman began life as a 1978 picture book by Raymond Briggs and was later adapted as a Channel 4 film first shown in Boxing Day in 1982. The Misadventures of John Nicholson, a Christmas story by Robert Louis Stevenson. This short story by Robert Louis Stevenson, published in 1887, follows the mishap and mayhem that befalls an Edinburgh man, the title character John Nicholson, as he keeps dubious company, loses his father's money, gets arrested and ends up estranged from his family and sweetheart. He flees to San Francisco. A decade later, on Christmas Eve, Nicholson returns to Edinburgh in a bid to set things right, only to wake up next to a bloody corpse and find himself in the frame for a murder. There is also a warrant for his arrest and suspicion of embezzlement from the US bank where he was working. A captivating tale of hope, misunderstanding and redemption. Christmas Fugue by Muriel Spark Written by Dame Muriel Spark in 2000, Christmas Fugue is about a young woman finds herself alone and restless in Australia as the festive season approaches. 
She decides to return home to the UK and boards a plane on Christmas Day where a romantic encounter leads to an unsettling epiphany, a spooky short story to curl up with in front of a roaring fire. The Twelve Days of Yule by Susan Rennie Author and lexicographer Susan Rennie is a former editor of the Dictionary of the Scots Language. She shares that expertise in The Twelve Days of Yule, a Scots version of The Twelve Days of Christmas, with colourful depictions of skaters scushing, lassies burling, sheep a shugling and five gowden rings. The original Twelve Days of Christmas is well known for being rather bird-heavy in its lyrics, and this children's book published in 2015 includes a raft of evocative Scots words for winged creatures, such as tap at hens, hool its hootin', bonnie doos, and a reed robin in a rowan tree. Santa's a Scotsman by the Scottish Quest All-Stars. With Scotland having given the world so many things, television, the telephone, the steam engine, penicillin and more, it's little surprise that someone would one day lay claim to Santa being one of us. I'll get that song to number one if it kills me, vowed Radio 2 stalwart Ken Bruce when the track was released in 2006. There was success of sorts when the Christmas single reportedly knocked Leona Lewis from the number one spot in the download charts, albeit only fleetingly. In 2007, Jeff Szyzynski, the then head of radio for BBC Scotland, banned the song, which included the line, Too many pies, not enough exercise, of course he's one of us, for inducing negative stereotypes about Scottish people. The ban was lifted after 48 hours when Szyzynski accepted that the lyrics which refer to Scots as pie munchers with a weight problem were intended as a bit of fun. Do they know it's Christmas? Former Ultravox singer Midge Ewer, who hails from Cambus Lang, famously co-wrote the charity single with band-aid organiser Bob Geldof, frontman for the Boomtown Rats, in response to news reports about the 1983-1985 famine in Ethiopia. The duo pulled together a supergroup of A-list music names, Paul Young, George Michael, Boy George, Simon Le Bon and Bono, as well as Bananarama and Spandau Valley, to record the song which topped the Christmas charts in 1984 and stayed there for five weeks. Do They Know It's Christmas has been since been re-recorded in 1989, 2004 and 2014 by Susan Swarbrick. And that was this week's The Herald podcast, normally recorded in our studio at the Bishop Briggs Media Centre, currently recorded from our volunteers' homes with the publisher's kind permission. Thanks for listening.